From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. Ever since the collapse of Arthur Anderson back in 2002, when the Big Five turned into the Big Four, things have been relatively stable in the accounting world, but that might be about to change. Ernst & Young's top leader signed off last week on a plan to spin off its lucrative consulting arm into a standalone, publicly traded company with the spinoff set to be complete late next year. EY audits some of the biggest companies in the world, including Apple and Alphabet, but some of its other clients, including Wirecard in Germany, Luckin Coffee in China, and NMC Health in the UK, have recently imploded. To talk about why EY is pursuing this and what it could mean, we turn to someone who knows a thing or two about accounting shakeups. Jim Peterson was a senior in-house counsel at Arthur Anderson, and he's been writing and teaching accounting ever since. Peterson spoke to Bloomberg Tax's Amanda Icone about whether EY would be healthier as two rather than one, and what happens now that the world knows the company is pursuing this. It will definitely be consequential. The toothpaste has been let out of the tube, and there'll be no putting it back in again. Uh, the Motivations for the deal on the part of EY's leadership have always seemed questionable to me. It never appeared to make sense that the marketplace was crying out to have this deal, to have separate uh, practices, audit and consulting. Indeed, the leadership of the other three of the large firms have resoundingly pushed back and resisted and declined to engage that way. So what is animating Carmine DiCipio, the global head of EY, is anybody's guess. It will be a business school casebook uh, to explore that as things move forward. The question really is what will happen next uh, as this does go forward and what will the consequences be? I believe that uh, EY leadership has dramatically underestimated the complexity that they confronted. Their timetable has slipped already. Uh, they face approvals around the world from their local partners. It's not an organization that has cohesive, coherent global governance or leadership. So the prospect for dissension or rebellion or rejection uh, is very real. Uh, so we should perhaps think about the consequences going down two different routes. One is if the deal fails and the other is if the deal succeeds. My own view is that if the deal fails, uh, the impact for the profession as a whole, or for the large firm sector, the big four, will be relatively modest. Uh, EY uh, will be in a period of funk. Uh, there'll be a change of leadership, but the four-firm franchise will continue. The real consequences uh, could come about uh, if the deal succeeds in some fashion. I mean, a lot has changed since EY spun off its consulting business 20 years ago to cap Gemini. You know, you mentioned that the, this is a really complex transaction that they're about to undergo and that their timeline has already slipped. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the environment is different, either in the market or the, the audit marketplace too. I mean, we're in a very different place, at least in the U.S., in terms of like, audit quality, financial reporting reliability, you know, how, how is this marketplace different than it was 20 years ago when EY last broke up its firm? Well, it's interesting. The, the EY sale of its consulting practice to Capgemini was uh, a minor deal compared to what they're proposing to do now. 
I mean, they're taking, proposing to take a 40 plus billion dollar package of practices and uh, reduce the audit practice is projected to be about 18 billion uh, with the balance in consulting and advisory and tax uh, of various kinds. Taking that consulting um, melange of practices to market today is going to be totally different from what they were what they aspired to do, and by the way, the Capgemini deal, widely viewed now as a failure, um, would be just totally different. The accomplishment would be today just uh, what will they have if they actually get to market with that practice? I said before, I think the marketplace is not crying out to have them do this. Uh, there, there's been a lot of publicity about regulatory pressure to separate audit and consulting I think that is largely a smokescreen. I think there is no real credible pressure from regulators to cause that to happen. American regulators are more than tied up with their own uh, challenges. Gary Gensler at the SEC is all tangled up with crypto and other things. Chairman Williams at the PCAOB is up to our neck in China and totally uh, preoccupied. There is no pressure in the US for separation of practices. You don't think that the the pressure in the UK or even in India, I mean that I mean there is there are regulators in other countries that are very interested right now in audit reform. I mean the the pressure isn't coming from other countries. The there's been a huge amount of noise in the UK in the four and a half years since Carillion collapsed, but if you look at what's actually happened in the UK, there's been zero progress of any substantive kind. Uh, the Boris Johnson government was completely uninterested in actually moving forward with substantive audit reform. The furthest they got was what they referred to as operational separation of audit from consulting. And that's nothing but optics. That, that's internal management showing that to the outside world. And that's as far as they got. There is no substantive progress or energy or motion toward real reform in the UK, which is the most activated of all the other regulators besides the United States. So as I say, I, I discount that notion of regulatory pressure completely. By the way, the, the trust government has no interest in the audit practice. The, the new chancellor is the old secretary who was in charge of it, and he, he couldn't spell audit, much less pay attention to it. And you're talking about the, the change in political leadership in the UK. Liz Truss is now prime minister as a new administration coming in there. Um, you know, in terms of the, the size of the business, now EY has said that they expect this standalone consulting business to be worth about $100 billion. It, that's a good size business. I mean, you know, how, how does that compare to other publicly traded companies today? Well, let's, let's, put a, let's hang a great big question mark on the ability to achieve that. I mean, pretty clearly, uh, okay. EY leadership has got stars in their eyes and they're, pick your metaphor, they're, they're seeing pots of gold at the end of some rainbow. But there's a, uh, there's a really serious issue with their aspiration because they're claiming the opportunity to claw out that portion of a pre-existing mature marketplace. Uh, and as I said, there's no, there's no clamoring out there in the marketplace to have EY show up with their proposal book in their hand and with a big smile and say, here we are ready to take billions of dollars worth of your consulting business. Their audit clients about whom they're talking are perfectly happy with relationships with the consultants that they've got. And so EY comes to the market as a beginner 
at this big ticket level, aspiring to grab onto a, a very, very handsome, generous share uh, of, to be sure, a rapidly expanding market. Now, let's step back a little bit and, and look at the deal from the perspectives of the two different businesses. One thing is pretty clear, and that is that the world is looking for dramatically expanded services in the area of reporting and assurance. Sustainability is enormous. Everybody and his brother and sister wants a piece of that action. In the EY environment, where is that going to live? Um, if that moves to the consulting practice, uh, they've got to figure out how to do it. They've announced over the last years billions of dollars of investment in it. If it goes to the consulting practice and the audit practice doesn't have it, uh, then EY Audit faces the audit market without the skills and expertise and resources that indeed the world is asking for. Well, I will say that the, the firm has told me that, you know, firm leaders have said that, you know, they do plan to provide, to, to retain a portion of its valuations business, of its actuarial services, of its forensic accounting, of its financial accounting advisory. In fact, the majority of financial accounting advisory will be with this new audit only firm. Um, that it will have access to those some of those key resources that they historically they've relied on from their consulting colleagues. Um, I, I want to circle back to uh, something you mentioned earlier about independence rules and conflicts of interest. And, and we talked a little bit about regulatory pressure there, but um, it, it, it's a really unique regulation for audit firms compared to other kinds of businesses. It's, you know, other consulting firms like Accenture or Capgemini, you know, they don't, McKinsey, Gartner, they don't have to comply with U.S. audit regulations or U.S. independence rules or, or U.K. independence rules. They this, These just don't exist. Can we talk a little bit about that? Like the impact that has on recruitment, on retain, retention, because those requirements affect staff members' personal finances. They have to make all sorts of disclosures. The issue of independence constraints that's unique to the accounting profession um, impacts different practices in different ways. The motivation of the consultants to separate out and be free of those constraints um, is highly motivating. Um, so that, that's different from the external pressure from the regulators. They set the rules and then the consultants react to it. This was the environment when the Anderson consulting people uh, animated the divorce with the audit practice and they separated themselves out and, and built a wildly successful enterprise, uh, Accenture. So the consultants, th those people at EY who want to be free of those constraints and separate out and monetize that opportunity uh, are acting perfectly logically in their own self-interest. Uh, the challenge back on the audit side is that within the constraints of independence, uh, that kind of service cannot be provided to audit clients. And that's the shackle uh, that constrains consultants inside an audit practice. Here's the rub. Where do they get the people, the skills, and the expertise? Who wants to build a career only able to do the limited service to audit clients inside the book of business of an audit firm. Um, in the old days with Anderson, uh, the consultants could do both. 
moving back and forth. They could build the outside practice with clients other than the audit clients, uh, but uh, and then they would be borrowed and cross-sold to fill in the gaps on behalf of the audit practice. In the EY environment, uh, anybody who wants to serve the uh, fully serve the outside market or be free to serve EY's audit clients will want to move to the new consulting practice. And the ability to beg, borrow, steal, hire, retain satisfactory levels of skills uh, to serve the, the audit practice, I think is, uh, is going to be a massive challenge for that practice. They, they, if they don't live inside the practice, they will have to go out to the market and hire it somewhere. Plainly, they will not go to their old consulting buddies because if that relationship were solid, they wouldn't have split up in the first place. Did they have those challenges 20 years ago? Because it wasn't just EY. You mentioned Arthur Anderson broke up. Um, KPMG spun off its consulting business. Um, I, I believe PwC did too. Deloitte is the only other big four firm that, that didn't break up 20 years ago. I mean, what, what happened then? I mean, are there any lessons from that experience that you know EY thinks that they can learn from this time around? Well, I think the lessons that were available to be learned, I'm afraid, my own view is that EY has not learned them in their aspirations to do this deal. Uh, I've uh, compared their current environment pessimistically with the environment that Anderson Consulting had in in the lead up to uh, the separation with the audit practice. And I think there were lessons there available to be learned that actually haven't been learned very much. They had been learned, they wouldn't be doing it. That was Jim Peterson speaking with Bloomberg Tax's Amanda Icone. And that's it for today's Talking Tax. You can find ups and minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Rachel Daigle is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now. And we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.